Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to another Friday morning with the Weekly Weights, boys. That's so weird to say because it's Wednesday for us right now. Yeah. Yeah. Wednesday weekly weights time. Roughly. Friday locally. Well, good morning because you're obviously listening as soon as it came out because, you know, you're, you're loyal subscribers. Yeah, all the American listeners are really confused being like, holy shit, they're from the future. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is episode 59 and we're continuing the programming the blank series. You didn't say who you were. Which one are you? I'm Will Berkman. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Will Berkman. Yeah, I'm Alex Hayes, and uh, welcome to the show. Uh, today we are doing programming the squat. Programming the squat. So many, many moons ago, we did the fixing the series. Mm. We've come full circle. We're just going to start covering the same content we've already done. Just changing the title. Just changing the title. Um, no, in no in the coming up coming up in fifty episodes time, executing the squat. <laughs> I think that was episode one, wasn't it? <laughs> it was errors in competition execution. Um, no, in the fixing the series, though, we really we spoke a lot about technique, and we did speak a little bit about programming, but we spoke a lot about technique, the muscles required, and sort of like diagnosing issues. Whereas in in the programming series, we're really going to talk more about how we would actually structure training to improve the lift. So if you haven't listened to those ones. Um, you could go right ahead and do it. They seem to get a really good response. Um, and also, if you haven't listened to the um, long-term development podcast, the off-season podcast, and the peaking podcast, how many how many extra downloads do you reckon we can get out of this, guys? If you haven't listened to episodes one through fifty-eight, yeah. you might as well. They're essential listening. Yeah, if you. But basically, what we're going to go through today is the differences in programming in the different phases. Uh, for the squat in particular and if you if you don't have a good grasp on what those phases um, in general are going to look like it might be a good idea to go back and um, refresh yourself on that yeah and also you can sort of highlight yourself in our minds as a as a keen attentive and reflective listener by letting us know anything we say here that contradicts what we've said earlier because it probably means we've changed our mind on something it'd be worth clarifying it so if you do hear anything like that write to us with further questions we'll address them later in the series as well but to kick off, so we're talking about programming the squat, and rather than just speaking about training variables, um, we tried to group it under a couple of big questions. So the first big question is, what phase-specific changes do we typically make in the balance of the training variables? So by that, we mean across a training cycle, how would, like, what influences, what influences would we have in considering how to plan, you know, the frequency of training, the intensity of training, the volume of training, and things like that? So beginning with um, training variable number one, frequency. Alex, do you want to take us away? What did you have to say? Yeah, so I think just in general, the squat is going to lie um, in the middle of the continuum for pretty much all of these variables um, in regards, uh, sorry, in comparison to the bench press and the deadlift. So when we go through all these variables, you'll notice that the squat is kind of the middle ground between the bench press and the deadlift. So that's the first thing to note. Um, so let's talk about frequency of the squat. So how many times a week do we want to squat? How many times a week do we want to squat um, in the competition phase versus the peaking phase? Sorry, the hypertrophy phase versus strength phase versus peaking phase. So I, I wrote down two to three times per week for all phases. 
So this is the two to three is going to depend on the individual more than anything else, um, and the phase itself you could justify anywhere between two and three for all three phases um the way i see it um what do you want to start with that sorry you want to sort of start with that i'll say what i've got written down and we can maybe tease out why we're similar and why we're different yeah go for it all right so um first things first i should say that everything i say in this is what i like to do um, as opposed to being like utterly prescriptive and saying you couldn't possibly do it any other way. Um, obviously, there's reasons for me thinking the way that I do, which I'll also explain. So in hypertrophy and general strength phases, I usually opt for two time per week frequency of the squat, occasionally bumping it up to three. Um, but two would be my default, three where people need some extra technical work or where they can hack lots of extra volume or they recover very quickly. Um in hypertrophy phases, I usually use one um, one competition squat or a close variant. So a close variant for me would be like, say, a beltless squat or a squat with a very mild stance change, though I rarely do stance changes. I think we'll talk about that later. Um, and then I'd have one variation that either builds like a muscular or a motor weak point um, and something that handles high volumes well. Um, and again, like, so again, that might be something like a high bar squat or, you know, safety bar squat or something. Um and for stronger lifters, I typically try and make that slightly less overloading of a session. So the less specific one is also less overloading. And usually those variations are also ones where you can handle less weight as well. So that makes them a little bit less stressful. Um, for weaker people, I might have roughly equal stress between those two sessions. In general strength work, I usually do one competition squat and then one less overloading um, session where it's either like technique or weakness specific. So I might use a variation there. Um, or if they just need technical practice, that might be a slightly easier squat session. And then occasionally I'll have two sort of strength days, so two harder days. So one comp day, one grunt work day, and then one easier practice day. Um, and that's for people, like I said before, with higher volume tolerances and specific technical needs. And then we'll get to peaking after that. How much of that sort of jives with you, Alex? Yeah, literally all of it. Um, so for hypertrophy, I've written as little as zero comp squats up to one. And in this block, I would never go over one for the comp style lift. I don't think there's much merit in doing that. Why don't you think there's any merit in doing that? I don't necessarily disagree, but I'm curious. Well, in these phases, we're trying to build general qualities. We're trying to build work capacity and hypertrophy and all those things. And we can hack more volume if we... Sorry, we can hack more volume and we can kind of develop those general skills if we go away from um, the competition lift a little bit. And also, it's mundane and boring to just do the same thing two to three times a week forever so it's, it's a nice mental change and it's a nice physical break on the joints and on the musculature etc yeah i think something that i said um something that i've said in the other um programming the series episodes about sort of phasic structure in general is that being able to get away from the competition lifts reduces a bit of like the specific stress um and reduces a bit of the psychological stress so in some ways in some ways, I do like variation, although I also do think that there is room to use the competition lifts there, um, here and there. So it's sort of like a on a needs basis thing. Like if you can get people to get, put it like this, if you, if you spot in somebody a muscular weakness, say that needs to be developed before you actually go and try and improve their competition squat again, so say it's the quads, and you think, well, there's a variation that really elegantly addresses that without departing too far from that motor pattern. So in this instance, like a high bar squat would be a really good example 
then you can train that then you get the benefits of variety like psychologically and physiologically and then you can just return to the comp squat down the track so in that respect i agree but i also do think it's possible to use the competition squats plenty in hypertrophy phase so i just think there's also no reason that you have to so you probably shouldn't necessarily yeah i agree and also we've spoken about this a lot um as well developing the technique for the lift doesn't take a very long time so if you do go away from it particularly if you have a long you should say refinding the technique as opposed to sorry refinding the technique as opposed to developing it like if you're a if you're a beginner you need to learn to squat if you know how to squat you can go away from squats and come back to squats and within you know three or six weeks you can squat just fine yeah even more so for someone who's been lifting longer yeah for sure um but yeah we don't we don't need to continually do the main lift for that pattern to still be there mm-hmm. um and when we go back into a competition specific phase that pattern will come back very quickly um and you know if we do give ourselves a, enough time between competitions there probably is a very reasonable justification for going away completely from the main lift particularly squat i've just had a brainwave this hit is me. always dangerous hit me um tell me how much you disagree so one of the reasons <laughs> one of the reasons we might use a variation. So let's go back to my example of somebody who has lagging quads. How do we identify lagging quads in a squat normally? You see a technical error, right? Mm-hmm. So you see people shifting out of like a knee dominant pattern, their hips shoved back, their back folds over, right? And you go, oh, okay, this person's got lagging, lagging quads or they've got some other technical issue, but let's just say that they've got lagging quads. And then we want to address that before we get them squatting again and hope that it improves. So in some ways, having some time away from practicing your inferior squatting technique and getting challenging loads with a squat variation that actually forces you to use your quads is good because then when you go back to your normal squat, you're actually hoping for a technical change. So you're hoping they're going to have to relearn the technique and integrate their newfound squatting skills and new strengths that they have in it. So it being a little bit rusty is, is almost preferable because you want a change. You know, You want them to be feeling it out and saying, what now feels good with my newfound motor skills? What do you think of that? Yeah, I agree. So, if to put this in a practical example, oh Jesus, what'd you do there? Oh, that was me. That was me slapping something very loudly, like Enter the Dragon style, because I just said something so wise. <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, practical example of this, exactly this, this example that you're talking about is, say, someone shifts away from their knees at the bottom of the squat. They shift the weight onto their hips. The bar comes forward. Very, very common um, mistake that we see, and you know, I. Generally, could be weak quads, could be a whole host of other things. But if we do identify that it is weak quads and we put them in a position where they have to stay more upright, so like a front squat or a high bar squat, or and then we give them a bunch of other um, quad accessory work where they are upright, you know, whether it's a extra elevation of the heel or a pendulum or whatever, um, when they go back to their competition squat, they're going to be doing more of a pattern to what they have been doing in that load limiting variant yes so we are actually after changing their technique to be more like the variation yeah exactly that um so so far let's sum up what we've said about hypertrophy phases is between zero and one competition squats i tend to use one but would happily do zero and usually twice a week squat like squat patterns that we're loading the other thing that i said was that my variations try to address muscular and motor weak points we've just kind of explained why And then I said for stronger lifters, I often make that variation also just slightly less overloading. So usually that means handling less total weight 
um, rather than doing things like reducing range of motion or being further from failure. So again, another really good example might be a high bar, but even less overloading than a high bar for most people would be, say, a front squat. Um, and maybe even less overloading would be like a machine variation if you did happen to use, say, a pendulum squat, you know, because there's just a little bit less spinal fatigue. But, but things like that where you also, rather than having actual undulation in the volume of sessions, you just have undulation in the amount of sort of like systemic stress that they present. Is that something you do? Yeah. So in these, the way that I wrote it down for the um, intensity part, which should I should I save it? Yeah, maybe save it for intensity. But yeah. do you broadly agree that that's one of your criteria in choosing exercises, or not so much? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And then for weaker people, I said I'd use roughly equal stress. So maybe if I had a, if I had say a fifty kilo woman who squatted something okay but not great like i don't know 80 kilos that's all right for a 50 kilo yeah. Woman, right? yeah it's not great though um for them i might have like you know three sets of eight on their competition day but then their high bar day might be four sets of 10 so they're they're equally hard sessions even though the high bar day is a little bit lighter it's compensated for by increased volume because i expect that person would be able to recover more mm-hmm. and they that also might be somebody who's a candidate for a third day of quad work or a third day of squat pattern exposure mm-hmm. just because they're a little bit weaker Again, broadly agree? Absolutely agree. Not even broadly. Okay, sweet. Well, then let's move on to strength phases. So I said in general strength phases. So this is prior to peaking. That's what I would call a general strength phase. So when there's not a competition imminent. So how would you define for the listener? Yep. uh, How many reps are we doing in this phase? Four to ten? Four to eight? Yeah, I was going to say in my main lifts, strength phases the main loading days are usually between three and six, but they might go a little bit higher. And then there might be easier days that are doing less than three reps, but that's because they're very easy doubles, not heavy doubles. Um, and yeah, so anywhere in the three to six range is the normal work. Maybe two to eight is the bread and butter. And then they might have a little bit of hypertrophy work on the side, but a little less. Um, so yeah, general strength phases you're starting to swing the pendulum more towards actually preparing people to lift heavy loads in the squat, hence the rep ranges I was talking about. And almost invariably, I include the competition squat there. There might be occasions where I didn't, but for most people, that wouldn't be the case. Um, And then I said that there'd be a less overloading day that was technique or weakness specific. Um, When we get to intensity, we'll talk about it, but you usually need a bit more contrast in difficulty between those days because you're lifting heavier loads. And then I also said that occasionally in those phases, I'll have two strength days. So two days that are actual overloading squat days, one which is a competition day and one which is one which is grunt work that's aimed at addressing a weakness. So again, I might have a toughish comp day, a toughish high bar day or a toughish safety bar day. And then one day that's an easy day or a practice day. Um, and then that's for people who need specific technical work or who just tolerate higher squat volumes. What do you think? Yeah, so I've written very similar to you, um, the same overarching two to three times a week of squat. Mm-hmm. And if there are if there are only two days, one day will be the competition specific squat, and the other one will be weakness dependent. Um, whether you know if we need more quad work, it might be um, a high bar. If we need to work on our um, stability in the hole, our positioning in the hole might be poor squat, um, or whatever the individual needs. Um, and if there is a third day, that third day is probably also going to be the main lift or something like a tempo, mm-hmm. um, something that's very easy and easy to recover from, but yeah. but but more f- uh, focused around practice. Yeah. Um, 
So that's also how I delineate between... I often say grunt work, which, like, is a bit of a nebulous term. But when I say grunt work, I mean something that is broadly the pattern that you're trying to do. It works the muscles that you're trying to work. And it's, you know, it's in the sort of toughish, toughish RPE realm. And, you're like, you're getting through volume on that pattern of work. And then stuff that I call technique work or practice work or easy days are days where there's lots of reps in reserve. It's very recoverable. And you could do it prior to... So say you could do easy squats prior to a deadlift session and it would almost certainly not affect your deadlift performance. Whereas if you did grunt work squats before a deadlift session, you'd be tired going into deadlifts because you've just gotten through some significant squat volume. Mm-hmm. So that should make the delineation clearer in people's minds. Yeah, so the that secondary day is like... Um, a probably slightly easier day than the competition day, but often with maybe an extra set or more reps on that exercise. Yeah, and usually in those grunt work days that I talk about, I am trying to address some type of technique or muscular weak point still. So, you know, like I said before with high bars and safety bar squats, that they really punish people who have their hips shift back out of the hole. So even though you might use slightly lighter loads, um, you know, and you might you might be doing slightly higher rep ranges or something, they are still punishing and challenging. So people's perception of difficulty in those sessions is often close to the same as their main loading day because it's a more unfamiliar pattern that forces them to do things that are harder for them. And also they're carrying um, some fatigue from the squat session earlier in the week. The Absolutely, one. yes. Okay, um, picking blocks. So I've written... Again, the overarching two to three times a week of a squat pattern. Um, and I've written here, all squat sessions will be comp-specific, in parentheses, if the lifter can handle it. Um, and that's usually lift uh, injury limitations. Good use of parentheses. <laughs> Thank you. I actually thought parentheses was like an ancient Greek for a long time. Sounds like it. Yeah, it does sound like it. Um, shout out to Squeaky Wheel on Instagram, who <laughs> wrote to me about whether the Olympic motto was in Latin or Greek saying like please tell me you know that it's latin can confirm on air i didn't know that it was latin but i do now so thank you i said that it sounds latin but it makes more sense if it's greek exactly right but what's the difference between the greeks and the latins anyway am i right yeah anyway okay um yeah so what did you say um you said two to three times a week always comp specific parentheses uh comp specific if the lifter can handle doing multiple comp squats per week and oftentimes this is this isn't the case mm-hmm. um and i found this mostly with larger guys um very i've never had this with this issue with females mm-hmm. um i don't know if you've had the same experience um yes so larger guys often getting beaten up shoulders and elbows and things just from trying to get into the low bar position yeah yeah um tends to be the case i think if you just have a thicker body generally then having to wrench your arm back further behind you um Yep. To get there, yeah, it makes it harder. Okay, so I agree. I, I've i written here that I either stay with twice a week loading where only one is an overloading session. So again... The, we'll get to that intensity a bit later. Yeah, but one, yeah, twice a week. And then occasionally I do do higher frequency peaks. So I myself have squatted up to four times a week in a peak. Um, and I have a client currently who's preparing for a competition who's squatting four times a week. And then I have a couple of others who'll squat three times. Um, but I really limit the number of difficult sessions, so it's not, you know, once it, once it gets heavier, the the distrib- sorry the distribution of heavier sessions has to be further apart, or harder sessions have to be further apart. So the benefit of higher frequency to me, um, 
in peaks is that it allows more comp specificity in your structure of other days by which i mean if you want to have people do a squat bench deadlift day if you have three squat days and one of them's a light day then you can have that light day prior to a bench and a deadlift session without impacting the other ones too much but it still gets people into the um, into the practice of doing all three in one day which i kind of like um, and distributing volume can increase the quality of the work so particularly when you do handle very heavy weights in a session sometimes the later work that you do in that session can be reduced in volume or sorry reduced in quality um whether or not you need to be doing very high volumes in your peak is another question but sometimes that's a consideration worth having do you want to preserve the quality and speed of your other work and i also think it allows people more practice but that just has to be balanced with um with the fact that your per session volumes are going to be low if you do it that way and you need to undulate the difficulty sufficiently um and yeah, I also think that having higher frequency volume can help compensate for reductions in deadlift volume. So when we get to the deadlift episode, I can talk about that too. But I tend to pull my deadlifts way back in the last few weeks leading into competitions. So there might be something to be said for preserving a little bit more squat work to compensate for that. Um, anyway, that's a discussion for another day. But I think there is some benefit to higher frequency squats in the peaks. You just have to be very careful about how you implement it. Wouldn't be something I would say to do to everyone. Any thoughts on that, Alex? Yeah, I, I don't go above three. And um, the reason for that is I like to have that I like to have that final session of the week be the deadlift session. And oh, I like to have it session. Yeah, I like to have that on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, just I like the lifter to come in and feel fresh. Um, you know, whether that's just a psychological thing, even though they aren't going to be fresh on the comp day. Um, I think you get a lot out of the adrenaline of comp day that I think it's almost equal to having them first up in the session. Yeah, I think people, just as a general consideration for peaking, people get very, um, get a little bit intimidated by their heaviest sessions, particularly for the squat and deadlift. Um, I think the bench, it happens to a degree if people are anxious about missing. But the squat, there's the danger element of having a heavy weight on your back and the deadlift tends to be the one that people lift the most weight in. And so there's probably something quite daunting about saying you're going to have to do other work prior to doing something that is already heavy and scary for you because people just aren't used to lifting a lot of weight in training. They think of training as when they just go in and just get some work done. Yeah. So there might be something to be said for also structuring your training to sort of facilitate people performing well like that but i you know i still have this inkling that for some people it's worth doing and certainly for myself i think it's helpful so yeah um, if you do do it the way that i do it and deadlift is first you have to take that into account when you um plan attempts Mm. Um, because if there is no fatigue directly before the deadlifts you may be deadlifting equal or you may be deadlifting equal in competition you may not get a lot out of that um extra adrenaline and hype because you've got that fatigue from squatting and benching in the competition beforehand. Yeah. So you have to be a little bit more um, conservative with your opener and second and then just play what's there um, on the day instead of trying to expect 10, 15, 20 kilos out of the taper. Yes. Because it just might not be there. I agree. Um, Anyway, I don't have a whole lot to say more about that with frequency. So it's basically twice a week through all phases for me with the occasional third session in strength, the occasional higher frequency in peaking, hypertrophy, rarely more than two. Um, intensity. Um, we've already started to allude to it. So in hypertrophy phases, I start squats for most people very light 
um, by which I mean sort of 50 to 60% of the 1RM and usually beltless. Um, and there's a couple of reasons that I do this. Um, the first one, which I'm not sure, I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast before, is that you can develop a lot of work capacity and I think it's really important to start sufficiently light to allow you to do it because most people who go into hypertrophy phases do it off the back of a competition prep or some type of a strength phase or a taper where they've been doing a lot less work. Um, and so they're probably not really well accustomed to doing sets of 10. And the first couple of times you do them, even with light weights, they can feel really terrible if you're quite strong. Is it almost like a separate phase for you, that like work capacity phase slash uh, recovery phase straight after a comp? Uh, it depends because like in the first two or three weeks, like if you're going to do a 14-week hypertrophy phase, then the first two or three weeks are really like introductory to doing the volumes that you do. So in that respect, yes. Um, and for people who've been doing a lot of specific work, I do deliberately pull way back from powerlifting. So in that way, I would consider it separate. But even just in general, if I was going to say like bread and butter, you're doing hypertrophy work for powerlifting, I'm not making any great accommodations for that. You've done a lot of powerlifting before. You're still almost certain to be short on work capacity when you go to start doing those high reps. And unlike the deadlift for most people, um, most of your squat volume that you accumulate is going to be done in relatively high volume sets. So your ability to get through, oh, sorry, relatively high rep sets, I should say. So your ability to actually get through relatively high rep sets needs developing. And so I think it's important to start with sufficiently low intensities that you don't like burn out and squat like shit and either get hurt or just get really overtired. So I do like to start people quite light. And the reason I like to start beltless is because it just gives higher headroom for progression and also means you can start lighter. So like say, say someone who's doing a few tens at 50%, which for most females is probably way too light, but for men might be reasonable sometimes. If you're doing a few 10s at 50% beltless, you might be able to progress those 10s to 65%, maybe even more, um, you know, and then start dropping to 8s and things. And by the time you're stalling at 8s and 6s and stuff, you can whack a belt on and get another 5 or 10% of load progression out mm. from there. So it's just another variable that I'm sort of, you know, keeping in the back pocket to throw in later to keep people progressing. I don't think there's a huge benefit to it. What do you think about that? Yes, I agree. And I would even take it one step further in that first four to six weeks. I might throw in like a, it might be a high bar beltless on the first day. So you're starting at like 40% of the low bar competition max. Yeah. And then after that four to six weeks, you can go to low bar, keep a beltless. And then after that next four to six weeks, then you throw the belt on and that just gives you room to go all the way from 40 up to, as much as 70 for you know six or eight beltless yeah and i think another reason if i hark back to my work capacity comment another reason why high bar squats can be really great is most people squatting high bar squat over a slightly longer range of motion so you're actually doing a lot of mechanical work per set and mechanical work is basically exactly tied to energy expenditure so if you want people to get used to expending a decent amount of energy in a 30 second squat set then get them squatting over a full range of motion. So high bar in heels, ass to grass, you know, and then start worrying about adding load because you can always add load later, but they actually need to have the fitness and resilience to do it and get through sufficient work to get better. So I like to start relatively light. Um, so if we're talking um, hypertrophy phase, we're talking probably um, 60 to 75% intensity. That would be That would be like the broad bread and butter intensity range though i would start my main squats lighter for the reasons we said Mm -hmm. though i guess when you actually um another thing to consider though is if you actually remember all the accommodations we've made so say it's a high bar beltless squat 
How much do you reckon you could actually squat high bar beltless if you maxed out? Like you're about a 240-ish normal squatter. Probably 190. You reckon? Yeah. You don't reckon you could do more? Um, Say 200. Yeah, maybe. Two, nah, 200 would be a stretch. Okay. So, well, 190 is 80%, right? Beltless, eight at 160. But that were really hard. Right. Okay. So, yeah, that would be quite tough. Okay. But so, so say it's 190. That's about 80% of 240, right? So, then... Even though you're doing forty percent of your competition squat, it is probably closer to sixty percent of your high bar beltless capacity. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. whatever variation you choose, it's probably sixty to seventy five percent of the that max variation. for that variation. Yes, and that's that's important. Yeah. Don't go from a comp and then try and do sixty percent of your competition max high bar beltless for tens because you'll fucking die. Yeah, that'll be quite especially tough. in the first week. I think so. The other thing I wrote under intensity is undulation. So we were talking about that a little bit earlier too. And I said that I have much less intensity undulation. Can we go through? Oh, okay. Yeah? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have less undulation in, in intensity in hypertrophy phases and relatively relative difficulty between the sessions is usually maintained or only slightly reduced. So again, ex- like using our high bar example, I might reduce the load on the bar 10% on a day where I'm squatting high bar as compared to the day that I was doing comp squats earlier in the week. And then, again, going back to my light woman lifter example, if there's if they're a decent amount weaker, I might also add a couple of reps, which, may, which means it's essentially the same level of difficulty. If they're, if they're a stronger male and they need a day that's slightly less harder, slightly less harder? Slightly less harder. I think slightly... slightly easier. <laughs> no, slightly less harder. Because... It's only in peaking when training needs to be most esterous hard, right? Yep. Yep. So, um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, in, um, for a male who needs, or a strong lifter in general who needs a, um, a slightly easier day, I might have them 10% lighter for a similar rep scheme, but because your high bar squat's likely to be, you know, somewhere in the realms of 10% weaker than your low bar squat for most it becomes, people. Yeah, it becomes more like a 20% intensity drop. No, 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 I'm saying if if you're only 10% weaker at high bar and I'm only giving you a 10% lighter day, it's essentially just as hard. Oh, okay, I gave you a yeah. I gave you um, If I actually wanted it to be 10% easier, then I would make the low drop bigger. But again, I'd make that call on a lifter-by-lifter basis, and for most people, they can handle two sessions of similar relative difficulty because the intensity is very low. Yeah, um, I've written almost exactly that. Uh, lighter days are closer in intensity to heavy days during the high volume blocks. Um and because of that, the session difficulty becomes similar. Yes. Um, and, you know, if we if we use my example before of going away from the low bar, um, we'll probably use that that high bar for the first, like I said before, four to six weeks. And then on the secondary day, it might be something even further low limiting, like a safety bar squat. Yeah, or, that was actually my next or question. Or a front squat. So you don't do high bar twice. You'll do high bar and then like a front or a safety or something. Or... Or if I'm trying to develop some technical capacity, um, a tempo or okay. a pause squat or something something like that that's actually, uh, again, easier than that first day. Okay. And I don't want to jump the gun enormously on like the specificity part of this discussion, which we're going to get to soon as well. But on those... So if you have somebody doing, say, a tempo squat for four sets of five in a hypertrophy phase... Because tempo squats are much lighter and, you know, they're usually lots of reps in reserve because they're a technique variation, do you then have to compensate with more accessory work for those lifters? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. So they might get a couple extra sets of leg press, pendulums, Bulgarians, lunges, whatever. 
to accommodate the fact that their squats yeah. are easier. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I I also wrote down under intensity that in hypertrophy phases, I usually actually keep a reasonably high number of reps in reserve on the squat sets, um, which is maybe a little bit um, counter to what I normally say about hypertrophy training. I think most of your hypertrophy training should be like three or fewer RIR most of the time. Um, but... Um, as your strength increases, getting through the volume gets hard. So that's that's one of the reasons why you need a number of reps in reserve initially. You need enough work capacity to make your subsequent hypertrophy training hard. And two, um, you might start to see technical failure a long time before you actually see people unable to complete a lift. So particularly when we're doing, say, a high bar squat, that's the I think that's just going to be our go-to example of a variation today. Um, if you're doing a high bar squat for somebody who needs quad development, you might start to see them shifting out of the ideal high bar pattern a long time before they actually start missing high bar squats. And that's because they still have strong hips, they have a strong back, they can muscle through squats in a suboptimal position. But if you're seeing that technical failure due to fatigue, then you're also observing that their quads are actually reaching, you know, they're reaching full recruitment, they're starting to get some fatigue themselves. So if anything, that's an indication that your set is or like your exercise is elegantly addressing the problem that you're trying to do without them necessarily needing to go all the way to failure on those compound exercises. Then in your like in your accessories and isolations, you can get much closer to failure because they're more targeted again. But with, like within the competition lifts and within the variations that I, that I choose, I don't mind seeing close to technical failure or technical failure. I don't want to see them actually missing lifts. Does that make sense? 100%. And you don't, you know, if someone has a really strong back, for instance, um, like me, my back is much stronger than my legs. When I squat high bar towards, you know, those beltless eights I was talking about earlier, like my last four or five were like completely shift away from my legs, like all back towards the end. And like, that's probably to a point where you probably don't want to even go that far. No. Like I, I, I still had, you know, like I got to four RIR and did another four and the set itself was a 10, but my quads were cooked four reps ago yeah you could have probably gotten equal quad stimulation with like 10 kilos less load on the bar yeah and less back fatigue Mm -hmm. yeah um so you know there's a there's a parable to reflect on jp (laughs) 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 um that's alex's coach (laughs) so in strength phases do you have anything to add sorry before i move on to strength phases for intensity no okay so in strength phases um my notes so I have more undulation between the heavier and lighter days. Um, most of my overloading sessions are in the 70 to 85% range and the easy days might sit 10% lighter. So in the 65 to 85% range, also with more reps in reserve and decreased total volume on those days. So one more time, overloading sessions in the 70 to 85% range, easy days in the 65 to 75% range and more reps in reserve. Um, occasionally the grunt work, that I've mentioned before is harder per set than the main lifts. Um, that's on an as needs basis. And I also said that some lifters might benefit from exposure to some heavier squats during general strength. They're typically advanced lifters who need like mini realization phases or some practice and less advanced lifters who just need practice with some heavier weights. But for the less advanced lifters, if I give them anything heavier than 85%, it's always a single so it's something that they actually achieve, like they achieve a really good lift easily with a number of reps in reserve, but they're just getting acclimated to actually lifting heavier because some people just completely crap the bed once it's once it's above that sort of 85% range. What do you reckon about that, Alex? Everything I just said. Um, I also wrote 70 to 85% for 
the um, main work, but I actually disagree with you uh, with the secondary day. Mm-hmm. And I actually would also have a similar intensity on the secondary day during these blocks. Yep. And the reason for that is because, again, we're comparing it to the variation that we're using. We're using that percentage um, in comparison to the lift that we're actually doing. So if our secondary day is like a pause squat, yeah, we're still in the seventy to eighty-five percent range of our pause squat max. Yes, um, and the load's going to be less, but the difficulty, like you said, may actually be higher. Yes, um, or may actually be similar to that main day. Yeah, I agree. And I like the two. Um, I like the two days to be actually quite similar in difficulty in this phase, um, and then. And a lot of the reason for that is when we pull back that secondary day during the peaking block, which we'll get to, we actually become a lot fresher and then we start to perform better when we need to during that peaking phase I think, on the main day. Yes. Um, sorry, I should I should make it very clear. When I say easy days there as opposed to the grunt work days. You mean easy, lighter. I mean the light days, like the more yeah. practice days. But yes, otherwise I do agree. I think I would say all of my variation work does land in the 70 to 85% range of that variation. Yes. Um, and the contrast is in absolute load, not in difficulty. Yes. Yeah. So the the fatigue for that session might might actually be lower, um, but the difficulty of the session might actually be equal or higher. Yeah, I agree with all that. Cool. Um, and then, what did you think about what I said with exposing some lifters to heavier squats during this phase? Do you often do that? Yeah, I do. I'll often throw in a top set. Could be. Um, could be anywhere from one to five reps for the top mm-hmm. set with the back offs being generally higher reps. Yeah. Um, occasionally I've done like one by five, then three by five as back offs. Yeah, I don't mind doing that. that. Some lifters some lifters don't seem to do well with repeat performances, even when the first set is objectively like an RPE eight. RPE eight's actually a quite tough set. But like say the first set's objectively an uh, seven or eight, like it's a tough set. Um, sometimes when you say to somebody, okay, do three more sets in that range, they just rapidly start looking like shit. Whereas you can say, hey, do one hardish set. And because they've already done that hard set, they like they have immediate fatigue yeah. that makes their subsequent sets that are 5 or 10% lighter also RPE 8s, but they're still good quality. Yeah, you know, I think there's a the only downside to that is, and I've experienced this myself because Hanny used to program a lot of this for me. I'd be, mm-hmm. like, I'd be like, a one by five and then a three by five and the three by five would be like 20 or 25 kilos lighter like it'd be a big drop off well for you at the time that would have been 15 percent. yeah and yeah. like for me that was like a big relief and it would almost be like i would switch off after that top set and then you know kind of get a little bit nonchalant about um my intensity and execution through the latter sets um and that's probably the only downside i can see to using that kind of method yeah but I don't don't you think that's got to do with sort of the disposition of I'm not criticising you the person though that's easy um, <laughs> no don't you think that's got to do with the disposition of the lifter and also like the coaching relationship because if you had if you had any of your lifters in the squad standing in front of you they wouldn't switch off during like during those back off sets they'd still be trying to execute them well right for sure but it's sometimes you can't help it in the regard like you look at your program and you go okay I've got to do a set of five at whatever mm. and then and then it's easy because you can see on paper it's actually easier or you can see it, there's a big drop off so something I try to communicate to a lot of my lifters with when they do have a top set is like the top set's a chance to sort of extend yourself a little bit even if I don't want them to push it to like maximal RPEs I say you know like go out there like 
sort of have some fun, live something challenging, you know, see what you can like, see what you can do and how you feel and what you're moving on that day. And it's a chance for you to feel good about achieving something. And then your back off work is actually where the work is done. Mm. Um, and so, you know, on the back off work, I say stick to your IPEs and actually try and try and pick a couple of things technically that are going to make you better at doing, say, the squat, and then do it and sort of reflect each set on what you did well, what you did poorly, and what you can do better next set and use that as the foundation for your next week. And then if you do well, hopefully you'll realize some improvement in the top set. And the lifters who start to nail that mindset get better a lot faster than the ones who sort of go ham on their top set, kind of fuck it up a little bit, and then just go ham on their down sets without actually thinking about what they're going to do to build an improved session, if that makes sense. Yeah, that just comes back to the lifter mentality, I guess. Yeah. But again, like, um, I tend to use top sets as like a little bit of a gauge mm. to how things are progressing. progressing. Yeah. So the top set for me when I program it during this phase is it's probably going to be easier than the back of work. I mean, yeah, almost in, always. Yeah, ninety percent of cases, it's going to be it's going to be easy. It's like okay, have a you know, here's this here's this top double at you know eighty five percent, like it's a piece of cake, and then you got to do some fours at eighty. Yeah, I was right? going to say my. I mean, my guy I was training yesterday this morning had a top single, and it was a five percent load drop off to his four by four. And his four by four was at like seven to eight, so his top single was at up e two. Well, even what about Chris? He did one sixty five for four, for five, and then fours at one fifty. Yeah, that was abnormal. Though. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I agree. The top set is often it is often objectively easier, which is again something I first I mentioned when I first said this. It's objectively easier, but it's exposure to higher intensities, and I do think there's something to be said for exposure to higher intensities. So physiology ramble how how many episodes do you reckon it's been since i've gone on like a nerdy ramble it's it's been a good streak it's been and i was hoping that it would continue today (laughs) well okay so too bad (laughs) there's a number of mechanisms by which your muscles produce higher forces (laughs) people hitting the plus 30 seconds thing furiously (laughs) i'll put a um a timestamp in the caption for when this rant ends (laughs) No, look, there's a number of ways in which your muscles get better at producing force. Um, Like one of which being antagonist inhibition. So when your quad works to extend the knee, um, when you're really good at extending the knee, you also get good at getting your hamstring to relax. Um, You know, a number of other ones, your ability to synchronously recruit motor units. So your muscles comprised of a whole bunch of functional units and muscle fibers, each of which are innervated by a single nerve. And so your ability to fire them all in sync is really important another one is rate coding and rate coding is basically got to do with the frequency of signals that you send to those muscles to contract um and above a certain intensity um so or above a certain percentage of what's called a maximum voluntary contraction so how hard you can squeeze a muscle rate coding as opposed to those other mechanisms that exist accounts for most of the increase in force that you produce and so I'm not, I'm actually not certain whether this also comes into play, whether you do sets to failure when you do start to reach, you know, like close to maximum effort. But certainly it happens with exposure to higher intensities that you actually have slightly different mechanisms by which you start to produce force. And so I think there's something to be said, particularly when we're training for strength as a quality to giving people some exposure to high effort sets um, or high load sets. Sorry, I should say high load sets because you're you're asking something just subtly different physiologically of them that's part of my rationale i'm happy to be happy to be sort of proven wrong or have my mind changed on it um 
And I'd also throw out the caveat that when I said like maximum voluntary contraction, that doesn't necessarily translate to 85% of your squat max. It just has to be, you know, 85% of what your quad can contribute to the squat. So if you start to fail at whatever it is, if your, if your quad starts to really give out at 85% of your squat, it might be that you only need to be squatting 75 or 80% of your max to start getting those adaptations in the quads. But I still do think that here and there, giving people sets with three or four reps in reserve, but in the 85 to 90% range is a pretty safe way of saying, hey, we're going to ask you to produce high forces using like getting those specific adaptations. And it also just gets people acclimated to lifting heavier loads because there is something like subjectively very different about handling 85% plus as opposed to lifting 70%. What do you think of that, Alex? That wasn't as boring as you thought. I honestly wasn't listening. (laughs) To a single word. (laughs) I don't think anybody else was either, (laughs) if I'm honest. (laughs) All right, the listeners must love this. This It's two guys talking to themselves. (laughs) And not as in the collective selves. Me talking to me, you talking to you. (laughs) Yeah, Will Will's just sliding into Dan's whenever I talk. Yeah, and vice versa. Which means he doesn't get a lot of time sliding into DMs. <laughs> yeah, that's probably for the best. <laughs> um, I've been blocked. By <laughs> 90% of Weekly Weights listeners. That's my openers. You listen to Weekly Weights. Most people say, who's this? And the rest just block me. The they go, oh, just, you're that rambling they guy. They just disappear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, anyway. So yeah, Let's, top sets are good. Yeah, top sets can be good. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> All right. People are going to do top sets anyway. That's what I realized. Even if top sets were the worst thing, I reckon if I wrote like a 20,000 word article explaining why top sets are shit with good reasons, people would still do them because otherwise Instagram powerlifting would die. You know why they would still do them? Because no one's going to read 20,000 words. If I made... <laughs> yeah, well, that's also true. If I ghost authored for Greg Knuckles, who people actually listen to, do you know how distraught I was when he said like episode one of his podcast hit 10,000 downloads within like two days? Did it? Yeah, something like that. Damn, yeah, damn we, we suck. suck. <laughs> All right, let's move on to peaking phase intensities. So I, in a peaking phase, tend to work progressively towards more than an opener and often around a second attempt or at least a second attempt difficulty set in training. So, you know, people might do a top single at a prospective second or nearabouts. Um, and then over the course of the peak, the light sessions have, you know, a reasonable number of reps in reserve and often that increases. So this is something we spoke about in our peaking episodes a number of times. Um, I might have the load increase in my light sessions while simultaneously having the reps and total volume decrease by even more to compensate. But sometimes I'll flatline load on on an easy session and just chop sets and reps away so that the number of reps in reserve on the easy days goes right and right up to allow for intensity pro- progression on the hard days. Um, what do you think of that? So peak intensity being around a second attempt, light sessions being way easier and having increased reps in reserve over the course of a peak. Uh, yep. Good. <laughs> I'm just trying to read my notes here, and I've written something that doesn't make any sense. 90% of what you say doesn't make any sense to me, if I'm honest. It's not true. Read exactly what you said. <laughs> no. Guys, we're going to get an excerpt into the mind of a man. <laughs> All work and no play makes Alex a bad boy. <laughs> no, no, I um, entirely agree. I'll get... My lift is to usually, uh, to usually go 
very close to a second, if not the planned second. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this helps with building confidence on the platform. Mm-hmm. If you can say to a lifter, hey, you've done this before, you've done this in training, you know, think about how much better you feel now versus when you when you did it. You know, there's going to be more in the tank on the day. Blah 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 blah. That they really buy into that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think that's that's very important. Uh, the caveat to that is, the stronger someone gets, the less need there is to go as close to a second. Mm-hmm. But I will sort of go towards the middle of the opener to second range. Yeah, I think so, you know, there's if, some if, point if at which you can't not lift heavy. That's the thing. It's yeah. Like, Definitely some strong people can get away with lifting like an opener or just a bit more. But the problem is there's also more space between their opener and yeah. their prospective third, say. But, so it's know, like more uncharted territory. With, with that said, if you take a 20 kilo jump from your opener to your second and you do your opener three weeks out and you take seven and a half and then seven and a half the next two weeks, you, you haven't, know, you hit, haven't your hit your second yet. No, but like as but you're still somewhere in that sort yeah, of Yeah, that's that's exactly range. what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So whereas if you say I'm only gonna do my opener and you wanna squat two eighty and you're gonna open at I don't know, two forty five or something, I'm like, well, like you don't even know what happens at two sixty. Like what if you go two forty five, two sixty two at RPE forty five and then you're fucked, you know? So I think like you gotta do something. Yeah, I agree. I think I think about halfway between an opener and a second is probably the lowest I would go. Mm-hmm. And the highest I would go would be just above a second. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And what I tend to do now, this is something I've really started doing in the past maybe three months, is in my heaviest sessions, I call them indicator sessions because that kind of sounds nice. You got this from me. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, oh, cool. Well, that's a good idea. I'm glad I stole it. Um, but in my heaviest sessions towards the end of a peak, I often prescribe a weight range. Um, and you know, and I'll say like I want this to be second attempt difficulty or something. Usually, I'm, or if I'm not there, I at least communicate it quite clear, quite clearly. But I prescribe a weight range between you know halfway between an opener and a second, and a little bit above what would be a planned second. And then that way, unless they just totally fuck it up, the athlete does a single at the required difficulty as opposed to a single at the desired weight, which might be harder than I wanted because they're tired and therefore it's unnecessary or might be easier than, than I actually want them to do because they're just killing it, you know? Yeah. And um, I think something that you do and I do is we start singles uh, probably, what, five to six weeks out, you start putting singles in, um, four, five, on six the, weeks. Depends on the lifter, but certainly a number of weeks. They're doing singles for minimum three or four weeks. And what this gives us is an indication of how they've progressed doing all their hypertrophy strength work um, and weakness training. Yeah, and those and singles also transition from being like acclimation, easy yeah. stuff to actually yeah. hard work, yeah. And if, but we can tell if you do, you know, between your last month and your opener for a single and it's great that, you know, maybe we need to accelerate the progression mm. in the coming weeks and maybe what we thought your planned second was going to be six weeks ago is actually you know, another five kilos, another 10 kilos or whatever the case is. Mm. Um, so I think it's important to note that you have to start singles. You have to give yourself some time with singles so that you get a little bit of an idea as to what you're going to be capable of on the platform. Yeah, I think a lot of people are disheartened when they go, oh shit, I'm competing in four weeks and they're like, okay, well, I better do about my opener on my first like my first week of squat singles. So they're often disheartened that it feels way harder than an opener should. That's just because you actually just need some exposure to lifting semi-heavy in singles to be any good at it. 
So, you know, that's another reason to consider it. And one of the reasons we can start singles a long way earlier is for the reasons that we said about when we use top sets is because the back off work is actually where the work is being done. So, you know, a single between a last warm up and an opener isn't going to give you much of a training effect at all. But if you follow that with four sets of five or whatever at 80 ish percent, you're going to get a really good amount of training done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, uh, for percentage, we're going anywhere from 85 to 95%. Sometimes up to a hundred. If in the case of that lifter has improved and their hundred is now their ninety-five, but if it's I pick really a lifter 95. really shittily, I might even make them lift like up to one hundred and ten percent in training and nice. just miss everything in comp day. <laughs> it hasn't happened recently. And to be honest, I've had lifters where I'll go up to their third. Really? Yeah. If I want to see like, if I want to see their their plan second, and then I want to take another jump. Because their plan second moves really well, or like is no, that why I, you would do it? Or you I just, just want to explore like my options so that I know on the day like exactly what's going to be there. See, I find that really funny because normally when somebody says to me in training, I I basically want to max out so that I know what's there. I like laugh at them because I'm like you're a meme. So what's this, the difference between what you're saying? This would be when like I'm with a client. Yep, and like I also can be a confidence thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm with a client. I, I can see like I'm obviously watching all their warm-ups and all their um, working sets and stuff we might go open a second and then another jump to you know halfway between a second and a third mm. just to see whether you know to see like based on the second how the second moves what's there so you're not you're not maxing out your low end like safe thirding it like your daily yeah. maxing as yeah. opposed to real yeah, maxing yeah, yeah. yeah so that's something I would do much more often on bench press um, than squat just because benches are lighter and most people can handle and benefit from more volume. In fact, I can't remember the last time I did anything like that on squats. Oh, actually, my client Beck in her last prep got to, I think, within two kilos of what she squatted at competition in training. So that's that was kind of like safe third level difficulty. But it's rare that I would do something like that. Yeah, for me, it would have to be someone who is relatively experienced mm-hmm. and small. Yeah, okay, well, that like I can that makes sense. Um, it's like, you know, I'm not going to give Nick Walters his third squat. Nick being a 280-ish kilo squat. Yeah, 282. Um, RIP Nick's adductor, which he strained the other day. Oh, he's back to squatting. Oh, is he? Yeah. What a machine. He's fine. Okay. Um, shout out, Nick. <laughs> shout out, Nick. We've been going for quite a while. Let's take a quick break. Oh, um, I, I didn't get to uh, contrast in heavy light during oh, peaks. Yeah, do it. This is my favorite part. Um what <laughs> I'm just getting I'm getting I'm hype manning you for once yeah boy <laughs> what it's Alex <laughs> you're like a really when you do your hype man thing you always sound like a New Zealander um Flavor Flav you sound like if Flavor Flav was like an all black that's have what you heard of, like. have you heard Flavor Flav I've heard Flavor Flav you sound like an all black all right. have you seen Hunt for the Wilder People no okay well you're yeah, you sound extra okay what about oh you don't like Alex doesn't like superhero movies. So, um, Taiki Waititi, who directed the Thor Ragnarok, gave himself a cameo as this rock guy whose name I can't remember. Um, it's really funny. And he's got this ridiculously thick New Zealander accent. And he just says the funniest things. And you sound like him when you do Flavor Flav. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so tell us about the <laughs> contrast in difficulty now that I've roasted your shitty Flavor Flav impersonations. So, we spoke about there being... Um uh, very little contrast in difficulty between heavy and light sessions during hypertrophy. And then 
a slight a slight bit more contrast and difficulty um, or at least in in, uh, in load on the bar during the strength block but in the peaking block uh, I think there needs to be a quite a great contrast between the heavy and light day and the reason for this is we want to be uh, we want to gradually recover the closer we get to the comp and we also want to be more and more prepared for the heavier sessions um, so we need that undulation in volume and we need that undulation in intensity um, so with intensity, I tend to start, let's say a peaking block for is four weeks out. I tend to start the light day heavier than this, the next week's. So the weight will actually go down um, over that block the closer we get to the comp. Um, and obviously the weight's going to go up on that um, on the heavy day. So then the contrast grows and grows and grows the closer we get to the comp. So that's something we spoke about in the peaking one. And I've already said that I don't quite do it like that. I would more tend to do something like, so say I'm a 250 plus squatter. One of my light days this week, I had 170 for four fours, which is stupid easy for me. Next week, I'll do 175 or something for four triples. And then the next week, I'll do like 180 or something like that for two doubles or something. So I get a disproportionate reduction in difficulty while still increasing load. Um, for other people, and I don't think I've done this for myself, for other people, I might do something like, you know, they might in week one have, whatever, 175 for four fours, week two, 175 for four threes, and then week three, 175 for two doubles. Um, so the load doesn't decrease. I've never, I've never done that massive decrease unless it's for like a once-off session right before their hardest squat one. But it's not to say I don't think it's tenable. I just haven't found that necessary because I already build in that massive reduction in difficulty. So usually I will keep the volume um, the same or at least the reps the same. Okay. So it might start as like four by two yeah, and then go four by two, three by two. Right, okay. So that makes sense because it's already lower number of... Sorry. Because the volume doesn't drop as significantly, you drop the load. Yep. But it's essentially and, achieving yeah, the and same if thing. I were to drop, if I were to choose volume as the uh, variable that I do drop, then intensity would either stay the same or potentially come up a little bit. Okay. So again, I... But as long as the session difficulty is coming down, that's the, that's the big one. I kind of like... I like having the intensity come up and it's not for a really important reason. But it's just because I like people to get into the like into the process of just warming up like they normally do for comps and just sort of going through the motion. And because those light days rarely get above like a second last warm up, um, you know, occasionally they might get heavier if they're doing a single at a last warm up. That's still fine. It just gets them in the process of warming up. I don't want them to be doing like lots of like really light stuff. It just doesn't doesn't seem to have as much transfer to me, provided that the right the difficulty is low but that's a very not good reason for doing it it's just one that i like yeah and the reason that i like the drop in intensity is um because i like the my lifters to have the mental break mm. like i like there to be that session where you just turn up you do your mo- you do whatever mobility you need to get moving and then you just get it done and it's yeah. there's no there's no need to take caffeine there's no need to get hyped up there's no need to sort of you know, you, as long as you're switching your brain on and moving technically and getting good reps in, yeah, yeah, well, it, it's almost it like just turn up and turn up and perform and be efficient. Sure, but I mean, to me, turn up and warm up is more or less the same, right? You just warm up and stop before it gets hard. 
for me. So that's almost the same thing. You're just going through the process. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Um, let's take a break. We've been going for a while, and then we'll come right back with a bit more. Yeah, I just had a full diet coke, one and a half liters, and I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Weekly Weights, episode 59. I'm Will, back here with Alex. Um, we're talking about programming the squat. And so far, we've covered some sort of phase-specific changes in frequency and intensity. Next up, we're talking about volume. Um, and Alex just told me he's not really quite sure what he does with volume off air. That's a startling <laughs> admission from somebody who's been a full-time powerlifting coach for about four years. I just wing it. Yeah, whatever. Well, you know what? If you, if you just wing it and people are getting results, does it matter that you're just winging it? No. I actually agree. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, if, you can just, phil- if you can justify the winging it. Well, no, it's the same philosophical question, just rephrased as the... Well, okay. Let me start by explaining why I think this. Who I don't know if anybody else listening has ever had this like weird obsessive thought pattern i've had it heaps where i think imagine if i was really retarded <laughs> like like completely just super like you know shit myself retarded like can't speak just make weird noises and everybody in the world is just humoring me can and you I think, can not be politically correct on my podcast please will politically incorrect incorrect correct yeah. okay sorry if i was disabled but like extremely disabled and everyone in the world was humoring me and i had no idea and they all just treated me like a legend and I just thought I was a legend. I was like, wow, imagine if that was my reality and I just didn't know. Um, So then the philosophical question that's basically the same as that, I have that thought at least twice a week, by the way. The philosophical question that's basically the same as that is like the Matrix scenario. So were, were you to live a life that you really thought was happy but it was all a simulation and you were actually like, you were actually, you know, unconscious the whole time, would it still be a happy life because you thought it was happy? Do you think it would be? Yeah, if you if you fully believe that it is, yeah. Well, in that case, if you just completely wing writing your programs and you're not any type of an expert but everybody gets results, it doesn't matter. True. Yeah, so anyway. anyway in, all ser- <laughs> in all seriousness, I don't completely wing it. Okay. <laughs> so you do kind of know what you're doing with Bob. Yeah, a little bit. You just ask what's on your notes, Will, so I can read it. Well, fuck you. I'm going to read my notes first and then... Let's hear it, Will. Okay. Let's hear your notes because we were going to hear them anyway, weren't we? We were. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> I just wanted to get my, my philosophical chit-chat out of the way first. Okay. All right. Hypertrophy phases. I tend to do somewhere between 6 and 12 sets of squats a week. Um and then four-ish to 15-ish additional sets of quad work. The issues are very important, obviously. Um, I wrote less advanced lifters need less total squatting normally. And because they're doing less total squatting, they obviously have more slots to do um, additional quad work. Where squats are less overloading, so where you're a long way from failure and they're really easy, you need more of other quad-related sets to make up for it. Um, and some lifters don't handle high volumes of squats very well for one reason or another, like they get really beaten up or it's just too hard for them to get through lots of squats with the loads that they're using. And for those, you also need to make it up elsewhere with more additional quad work. Some lifters are also at higher objective RIRs in similar intensity brackets and so need less work um, with other quad stuff. So if you cast your mind back to um, Eric Helms's episode he did with us, which was a really good one, he spoke about a study that was looking at people doing, I think, 
It was 70% of 1RM and I think 30% of 1RM or something and taking them to failure. And at 70% of 1RM, some people were reaching failure after like seven or eight reps or something and some were getting as high as like 23. Um, so again, if we think back to Alex and I prescribing mostly in the sort of 60 to 70% range or something of hypertrophy, if you've got people doing a few eights at 70% and 70% are true 10RM, then that's three genuinely hard sets. So you don't need to do as many sets of additional quad work as you would for somebody else who might do three eights and be like, realistically, I could have done 15 or 20 with that load without quite failing. So so with that all in mind, there's a very wide range. But yeah, six to 12 sets of squats, less if you're less advanced, more if you're more advanced, and then make up the, the rest of hard sets of quad work so and you know the magic numbers seem to be between 10 and 20 hard sets of quads for me so it's basically you know 20 minus squats gives you a range of accessory work sets what does that what does that sound like to you well i've actually written 6 to 12 as well for overloading sets per week during a hypertrophy phase and i also wrote 6 to 12 overloading sets during a strength phase as well Mm -hmm. um i wrote that too good copy with also I've also written 6 to 12 of direct uh, squat accessory volume. In hypertrophy or strength or both? In both. Okay. Um, I disagree on strength, but not by much. Um, So in strength phases, I wrote 6 to 12 sets of squats um, and distributing them the ways that we spoke about earlier. And then I wrote 4 to 8 sets of additional quad work because your squats tend to be harder. Obviously, that doesn't make an enormous difference. So some people might do the same number of accessory sets between hypertrophy and strength phases, but what I tend to do is reduce one accessory slot. So if somebody on you know on their main squat day normally, like in a hypertrophy phase, might do, say, squats and pendulums and leg extensions and lunges, just for the sake. <laughs> That's a lot. What the hell? That's awful. Say so it's squats and pendulums and leg extensions on one day, and then squats and lunges and leg extensions on the other day in their strength phase i might drop one to two of those quad movement slots and possibly add one set to the other one to compensate for its for dropping that extra movement slot out but in my strength days i like to have people do less total movements in the day than they do in a hypertrophy phase just because it's tiring and they take longer and there's something really daunting about like going to start a fifth exercise when you've already done four really hard ones in a strength day um and also because you need to be more recovered to do strength work well I don't think there's as much merit to accumulating extra fatigue with hypertrophy stuff. So I tend to pull it back a little bit, but not heaps. Like, you know, four sets across a week less. See, I go almost the other way. You said you didn't even know what you did. So why should I believe a thing you say now? No, I said I wasn't sure. Okay, <laughs> go on. And the reason I wasn't sure was because I have similar parameters during hypertrophy block and a strength block. Right. And I wasn't sure whether... You agree with me or not, and it doesn't really matter. I'm going to explain it now. Okay, well, tell me. So the reason is... <laughs> so during a strength block and during a hypertrophy block, I'll have similar number of total sets mm-hmm. and similar session difficulty for mm-hmm. the two main squat sessions. Yep. So I, I want a similar difficulty of squats and of leg accessory work for the entire week mm. in both phases. So, but isn't more of it distributed to squats normally in a strength phase than it is in a hypertrophy phase? No, it's going to be a similar number of sets. So, as in, in, in a hyper, like I've you've programmed for me. So I'm going to say what I interpreted of your program to me in more of a hypertrophy well, you phase. Didn't really do a hypertrophy I didn't get phase. a hypertrophy phase, but say you say you did, you would often be like three by ten on one day and three by eight on another day, right? 
like you know, or three by ten, four by eight, or something. Whereas in your strength phases, you'd often have four or five actual sets of squats on one day and four or five on the other day. So you're doing more sets on in the strength phases. That's that would be common for you, right? No, no. I would do similar, like I said, similar number of sets. Well, I just don't believe you. During okay, well, I'll sh- I'll send you some of my programs. That's <laughs> no, all right. Don't bother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Won't read them anyway. Um, yeah. So I feel like you need to make up that extra work in the accessory work. Yep. And the total difficulty of squatting for that block should be similar. Okay. Well, I agree. I agree with the premise that the total difficulty of squats should be similar. But in my practice, I tend to have more of the total volume distributed to squats in the strength phase, which means less can go into the general work. But I still end up with the same total package of work. Yeah. So in that sense, I agree. I also like my accessory work to progress um, as we get to the end of the strength block. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, we might start at sets of 20 and end at eights. Yeah, 20s are awful. Um and in that last week of eights, I really want to be pushing how much work we can get in because I think it's really important that that extra work, that extra work you can get in away from the comp lifts is, is going to help. Yeah. So I, in my accessory work, I do tend to progress people's, um, progress people's loads. But what I tend to do is prescribe like rep brackets and then reps in reserve. So say like the first block, they might do sets of 10 to 15 with starting at three reps in reserve and progressing down to one to two over three or four weeks Mm -hmm. where they might start by doing three fifteens with three reps in reserve and the final week they might do something like 12, 10, 10 with one to two reps in reserve with a much heavier load and then they'll back cycle a little bit and work in the H12 rep rep bracket and then six to 10. But I get the same thing. I get linearity of load progression and I facilitate it by having the sets go a little closer to failure each time. So I agree. That's that's literally exactly what I'll do. Like start at... I tend to give um, just a number, mm-hmm. like three by twenty at seven, yeah. Then three by twenty at eight, then three by twenty at nine, and, and then the next first week, set at seven or last set at seven, or it doesn't really matter, just around that hard. Yeah, around. Usually last set RPE. Yeah. Um, and then the next week, three fifteens at seven, three fifteens at eight, three fifteens at nine, then three twelves at seven. Yeah, all the way, all the same. Makes yep. sense. Um, the other thing that I said about strength phases is that I would consolidate my quad work to fewer days sometimes. So um, so in a hypertrophy phase, I might have like my two leg days with lots of quad work, possibly a third day. Um, in a strength phase, if they're really strong, I might have them have squats and quads on one day and then just squats alone on the other one. So it might be like five sets of squats and four sets of quads on one day and then just five sets of squats on the other day. And if they're less strong, it might be five sets of squats, three sets of quads, five sets of squats, three sets of quads on the adjacent days. But I try and consolidate the work a bit because like I was saying before, when things are more intense, you need more recovery. And the best way to recover is to have your stresses consolidated to fewer days so that there is space away from the stress to recover. So I like to do that a little bit too. Um, And then if they have an additional easy squat session, so like the technique-based ones, I would do that sans accessories. Mm. Pretty much always. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And my um, sort of layout will be very similar in a hypertrophy block versus a strength block. It's just the volumes, intensities, and exercises are going to change. So those slots themselves won't really change a lot. Mm-hmm. I won't move. Um, I won't move any accessories away from that given day just because it's a different phase. Right. Okay. Well, that I think we subtly differ in that, but not not on principle, just in how we go about it. Yep. Um, peaking phases. 
So peaking is where there's probably the most variation in how much squats I give people. So I wrote between two and six overloading sets of squats a week and anywhere between zero and like eight-ish non-overloading sets. So they're the easy days. Um, And then what's typical for me might be three to four hard sets of squats for most of the peak on the first day and then anywhere between three and five easy sets on the secondary squat day or two to three hard sets on two days and then you know three-ish easy sets on an, on an additional day and then with higher frequency ones it gets weirder again um how's that sound yeah i will have if they are someone who squats twice it will be one hard one easy the hard being somewhere between three and six hard sets yeah and the easy being somewhere between three and six hard sets Sorry, easy, easy sets. sets Sorry, yeah. three and six sets. Yep. Um, and if they are someone who does three days, it'll still remain one hard day mm-hmm. um, with the easy work dispersed over two sessions. Yeah, well, in that sense, basically agree. Um, with higher frequency stuff, I've got it written down. I've done one to three hard sets on two days a week and then two to four easy sets twice a week as well. So in that type of setup, this is actually something similar to what I did with, um, with my old coach, Amir, who was episode two. Two. Yeah. Um, wow, that's OG. OG. Congrats to me if 737.5 on the yeah, weekend. Is that what he totaled? Yeah, mm. he deadlifted 320. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Scored a 260 and then... 62.5 and 155 bench. Okay, that's pretty good. Um, Yeah, so something I did with him at one stage was I had... I worked up to close to an opener as a single twice a week. And then on the other two days, I had much easier squat sessions. Um, I've done similar things... Um, to that myself and with a couple of clients so that can also work as well but again the contrast between heavy and light days I think needs to be reasonably high Um, and because you are working up to those higher intensities more frequently the amount of volume you do in those sessions also needs to be very low Um, but yeah it ends up being roughly the same sort of packet of volume Um, in peaking phases do you do much additional quad work very little yeah I wrote very little as well and when I do it's usually very specific to the lifter's needs. So I might say like, um, actually I didn't write an example down, but you know, for somebody who might need or I think they should have a little bit more quad work in their program, but they, you know, they just can't take too much more spinal loading because they like squat and deadlift quite heavy. They might do some leg extensions because they're really low stress and it lets me get some quads in. Or for somebody who like just has some issues with like hip stability or something, they might do a couple of sets of single-legged work but it's got to be very little. It's got to be placed usually on the day with the hardest squats to allow the most recovery across the rest of the week. And it's like as little as I can do and get away with it. Do you agree with that in principle? Yeah, I agree. And I I um, tend to use like one single leg, one single leg exercise, and that will be on the same day as the main squat. Yeah. And then one like fluff. Yeah, it's pretty much always leg extensions. Yeah. Um, on the other day, because, you know, we're not really worried about the lift of losing muscle in this phase. There's not really a huge need to push a lot of volume. And really spending time away from the gym and not training is actually probably more beneficial for recovery than doing anything, me- like, meaningfully hard. Yeah. And another um, observation I've made, this is another one of my patented brainwaves. Another observation I've made with a lot of the people who, like, who their quads really let them down when they're squatting they also tend to improve that pattern quite a lot with a taper because some of that fatigue comes away from their quads. Like, you know, from, like myself, for instance, my squat pattern gets way better in the last week or two 
of a peak often because I'm doing just so much less quads that my quads actually like lose a bit of that fatigue. So I also think there's there's something to be said for not doing heaps of additional work for those people if you actually want them to squat well. Yeah, we want to be able to be in an environment to express the strength that we actually have rather than doing bad reps because we're sore for yes. no reason. And the other thing with accessory work that I should mention is I always taper it off over a peak and I try and get rid of any extraneous fatigue from accessory works prior to the hardest session. So we spoke earlier about an indicator session. And so say say my indicator session um, landed on a Monday and normally the Thursday prior, I had some squats with additional leg work. Um, the Thursday prior to my indicator session, I would, that would normally be the day that I cut that leg work so that they have that extra recovery built in because really you want a solid indicator session for the reasons we just said. Yep. Yeah, agree. Um, is there anything else you got to say on volume? Um, oh, what about taper week volume? Taper week volume, not much, and it depends. <laughs> uh, it depends, usually not much. Um, most people, I have them do one to three singles at approximately an opener um, on the Monday for people who are, who are lighter and weaker in absolute terms, they may have one or two back-offs at very low RPE after that. And then later in the week, another couple of singles at lighter again. And then later in the week, either another couple of singles at lighter again or another couple of like triples at way, way lighter. But very little and no accessories almost always. You? Yeah, agree um, with the basic structure you laid out. Generally, the Monday will be the squat day for most of my clients so on that monday depending on who they are um my stronger male bigger lifters may just do their last warm-up yeah i've done that and that'll be five or six days out Mm -hmm. um the smaller smaller males most females probably do their opener two or three times um and then later in the week i'll only have one other squat session um and it'll be like two or three singles at second last warm-up for most people for even stronger people, even a little bit lighter than that, just literally warm up, get moving, leave. And no accessories. And zero accessories. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, broadly agree. Um, let's talk about specificity and variety. So we've spoken about frequency, intensity, volume. They're the hard ones, if it's anything. Um, specificity and variety. So hypertrophy, we've already said that there's less of a, um, less importance for absolute specificity. Um, and usually I choose I choose secondary movements and accessories to be specific to muscle muscle weaknesses or if somebody just needs to get broadly jacked, then you pick the things that most elegantly let them hit the muscles at, um, at hand. Um, and I also, I think you need to give some consideration when you're choosing squatting movements in the hypertrophy phase to how well those movements um, actually allow you to get through volume. Because like, say, I've done 10s on front squats and it's really hard and it's almost like suffocating and most people find it posturally really impossible and you could probably get similar things done with like a high bar or a safety bar which are actually quite comfortable to do for 10s mm-hmm. right so probably thinking about that you know likewise if you want somebody to do 15s then you know maybe a pendulum squat or a hack squat is actually just more feasible for most people and maybe a bit safer than saying like go do a competition squat for 15s for most people doing 15s on a competition squats just like a joke it's way too hard yep. what do you think yeah i agree you're gonna find that their forearms and shoulders are going to start to cramp before their legs have even had any fatigue um in that in that instance so yeah the 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 further we are the further out we are from competition the more we can get away with doing completely different random stuff yeah and you know for the squat in particular 
it's going to look like a lot of general exercises. It's going to be front squats, high bars, safety bars, pendulums, leg presses, hack squats, split squats, whatever. Mm. Um, and those are going to be those are going to gradually disappear and go away the closer we get to competition. Yeah. And then in strength phases, um, obviously there's I've said this as well. A slight increase in comp specificity with the squats that we choose, secondary squats to address movement weaknesses. Accessories either are the ones that most elegantly let us get the extra volume in for a body part, like my leg extension example, or are targeted in each slot to address the weaknesses that a lifter have has. So again, for people who have hip stability issues or whatever, I might bias more of their accessories towards unilateral work. For people who have quad weaknesses, I might bias more of their accessories accessories towards things that are really hard on the quads but it's you know it's still pretty much just picking general exercises to fit a general slot any disagreement there alex no no disagreement there and then peaking um nearly all of your work specific for the reasons that we've just said and then deviating from the competition squat this is something you started talking about earlier when you said if people can handle it so you said you know some guys struggle to do a competition squat more than once a week just because it beats their shoulders and elbows up Mm -hmm. um yep i agree with that as well and i just say like when i make a deviation from specificity in the peaking block it's to accommodate specific needs or facilitate fatigue management so the other instance i might do it would be if somebody has like a high bar squat pattern that's similar to their low bar squat pattern and it's easier on them and it means i can use even lighter loads in their easier squat day and i think that's beneficial So sort of three conditions, I think about all three of them and then go, okay, in that case, they can do a high bar that day. But my general, my general rule of thumb is like do the competition lift and just depart from that where I'm like, actually, this is slightly more elegant of a solution. I think I've said elegant solution five times in the past eight minutes. We should name this episode elegant solutions to programming the squad. Maybe if we call ourselves like the elegant solutions (coughs) podcast, we could broaden our appeal. Um, But yes, that's, that's my thought as well. Um, Are there any other instances with a squat where people might not handle as much heavy loading, maybe like patellar tendinopathy and hip pain and stuff. But if you got that, then you probably oughtn't be peaking. Um, yes. I mean, some people can only recover from one heavy squat session or one competition squat session. You might have to, for that reason, like if someone has a patellar problem um, and they squat in heels, for instance, and you know any full depth squat to comp depth is going to um, aggravate that injury they have, then you might need to look at like no shoes, sit back on a box and just like do a, do some reps. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, that's rare circumstances. Yeah. So you're accommodating circumstances as opposed to saying this is the ideal. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we can talk about accommodating circumstances to, to the ideal, but at the end of the day, we want all of our lifters to be able to fit into this structure that we've spoken about. So if they do have a problem like that, the goal shouldn't be to necessarily work around it it should be to find out what the solution for it is mm, yeah and, I, and I agree. fix that first rather than just putting a band-aid over it all the time mm. okay so that in my mind answers in totality the question of what phase specific changes do we make balancing training variables the next big question we had and don't worry there's not that many more of these big questions yeah, this um, is going to be long this is going to be a long podcast um but hopefully a good one the next big question was what differences in technique, tolerance to the lift and needs exist and how might they influence programming? So the good news is we've sort of started to allude to the answers of these. So we can knock this off pretty quickly. So in terms of frequency, intensity and volume, something I've observed is that 
people with a good squatter's build generally handle more actual squatting. And because they handle more actual squatting and get more carryover from actual squatting, they need a little bit less accessory work and variety to develop well. Um, it might still be beneficial in that instance to use some variety to prevent things like staleness and burnout, um, like Alex said when we were talking about hypertrophy. And it also means you can like manage postural fatigue and things for them. But if somebody's built really well to squat, they get a lot less extraneous postural fatigue from squatting because they're not always bent over and wrenching around and stuff doing it. So if you're built really well to squat, you can do lots of squats and get good at squats. What do you think of that? Yeah, so the reason that someone who's built well to do squats is uh, can do a lot of squats is because they travel through no they travel through a probably a shorter range of motion and they're more efficient through that pattern yeah so it's actually less volume per yeah. unit of volume so, when you think about yeah, it yeah that's right so often the forgotten part of the volume equation is range of motion mm. and um, you know it's not just sets times reps times load although that is good for comparing the individual doing volume like Will did X kilos of squat volume mm. That he can't compare that to me doing X kilos of squat volume because our squats are different. Yep. Different parts of our body take on um, different loads of the squat. We may um, be squatting, he might be squatting further than me or I might be squatting further than him or whatever the case is. So, you know, all volume is not equal in that regard. You'd squat less distance than me if I didn't squat so high. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but no, that's true. That was a good point, Alex. Sorry for interrupting with no, us right. you didn't interrupt I was done okay cool um, the opposite's also true um, so poor squatters might not tolerate as much squatting and you know, I just, you know what I just thought of what why does Lane Norton squat so much and do so many sets I don't know he's super determined though he like outwork <laughs> outwork um, what's it outwork mentality yeah anyway no if you are a if you are poorly built for squatting you need a good amount of squat practice, but you're also going to find that you're not going to handle as much squatting because it's going to beat you up more. And so you might want to do more accessory work during preparatory phases. And during peaking, um, you might need to manage the frequency of your overload more just because you're going to have more um, more fatigue per like unit of volume that you do. Um, we've also alluded to the variance in volume tolerance that people have at given intensities. Um, so the thing I said about Eric Helms... Um, and there's also, this is something I've noticed with my lifters, there's a variance in the amount of carryover people get from lighter work. So some people seem to need heavier squats to get good at squatting and really be accustomed to it. Some people can do some heavy work, but also find light work really productive. Have you noticed that in some of your lifters, Alex? Like some people just seem to seem to thrive on doing a little bit of heavy work, lots of light work. And some people, it's like, if it's not relatively hard, it's just not helpful. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a difference there. I I completely agree. I'm not. I honestly can't say for certain what the reason is, but it's something that I have observed. And when I make that observation about clients, I just make some accommodation for it in their programming. So the people who tend to get a lot of carryover from lighter work might be good candidates for having slightly higher frequency. This is like what we were talking about in um in peaking advanced lifters last episode. They might be good candidates for slightly higher frequency if you can just get them doing relatively easy work a couple more times a week at good speeds and stuff, maybe. But I'm yeah, I'm not really certain what the cause is, and so I can't therefore say like really broadly what the inference should be. It's just something I'd note. Um, we've also spoken about hip, knee, and shoulder and elbow injuries and how that can influence your ability to do the competition squat. Um, 
and that can also impact the frequency of heavy competition sessions but you can also just accommodate for that by choosing variations that are easier on the um, on the hip knee elbow and shoulder per the advice of a physio so if you've got issues with like say elbows and shoulders and safety bar squats and high bar squats can be really good options or you know pendulums and leg press if you really have to get that far away from it um knee issues alex spoke about squatting to a box or in heels um not in heels sorry did i say in heels yeah yeah sorry i meant in flats um is there anything else you'd do for people who have knee issues oh if you have knee issues sorry first thing i do is actually figure out whether you're squatting correctly and whether your hips uh operating correctly and whether your feet are doing the right thing as well but like other than that is there anything you would do to accommodate knee issues i think just on that same point that i made earlier don't just work around the injury you have like go and figure out go and see a good sports doctor or a good physio and go and figure out what's actually wrong with it so that you can get back to training like someone who's not injured Mm. because that's going to be your um, fastest path to success is going to be, you know, training the way that the coach actually wants you to train. And if that's avoiding doing the comp lifts because, you know, this certain injury keeps flaring up, then that's probably not the best way to go about it. Yeah, I should also just say it kind of sucks to have to train around injuries all the time. Like it's much more fun like, you got into training, presumably, because you actually like training and, you know, lifting heavy and trying hard and seeing progress. So, when you spend all your time dicking around, doing none of those things because you're a little bit injured, kind of sucks. It's really demotivating. Yeah, training is supposed to in- enhance your life and actually improve your health, not take away from your health. You shouldn't be, like, in pain all the time. Yeah, so, agreed with Alex there. Um, the next subcategory of, um, of individual different stuff is muscles used and the needs for accessory work and which muscles. So I'm actually not certain whether more or less upright squatters and differences in your stances actually change the muscular demands when you're squatting um, because I just, I'm not that well versed in biomechanics. But like you're going to have to produce, you know, the same net forces at the knee and hip to get the bar to go down and up. And I'm, I'm not certain basically that people who bend over more do heaps more hip work and less knee work than other people though they take the joints through greater ranges of motion, so maybe. Um, but I'm certain that people who bend over more need more back strength. Um, and upright squatters with longer torsos who do lose shape when they get um, when they get tired are also going to struggle to regain it because they have a long torso, so their back's a long lever and they get smashed. So if you fall into either of those categories, so somebody who squats bent over or you squat upright, but the thing that happens when you start to lose squats is that your hips kick back and your back starts to round, then having some good upper back and erector strength is really going to benefit you. Do you agree with that, Alex? Yeah, I think um, having a strong upper back is going to be beneficial to anyone, regardless of how you're built. Yeah, and I think... think, Yeah, just for some people, it's going to be something that you need to highlight more because it's going to um, really show in your bad squats if if it's not strong enough. I've I have a couple of clients and I've seen a couple of people who it's like hey they're they're built really limi- like limily limily they, they are they are limmy in their build <laughs> <laughs> um they're, so they're long of limb um they squat a bit bent over and their upper back is weak and it's a travesty when they squat like because they just get smashed the second they lose their groove, name and right? shame I will I won't name and shame them but like as in they pay double the price for losing their groove than you do if you're built like a fridge and squat upright. So um, with that in mind, you, you need to compensate for that. Like we think of the squat as being something where like your quads need to do a lot of work and your glutes need to support them. And that's true, but your postural muscles pay the price um, 
when those ones start to get really taken to the limit, which is what happens at your max. And so I kind of like to think that like having a strong hips and a strong back helps support the legs because when the quads are near their max, um, the lack of strength in your hips and back is, um, is basically what says, like what determines your inability to wrestle through that. So I, I tend to like seeing people address that, particularly if that is the postural issue that they have when they're squatting. Um, yeah, all those supporting muscles are going to um, provide that platform for you to actually express how strong your legs actually are. And the other thing that happens with people who tend to have weak hips and a weak back or are bad at bracing is that they like to descend to upright because they don't want to put load into those weaker structures. Um so you know and when people like when people do descend to upright and their hips don't move backwards as they get to the hole it gets worse for them because they tip over to rebalance their hips shoot backwards their chest starts to fall to the ground and then when they start to reverse because their chest is rapidly falling their hips start to rise and they round over more and their back gets smashed even more and their squats are harder on their back um and so you get this sort of self-perpetuating cycle of underdevelopment of those weaker muscles and shitty squats and so if you were to just get those muscles a little bit stronger and get people squatting correctly in a way that also helped develop those muscles, you would fix that. So I'd really have a look at the hips and back of a lot of people as well um, while you're looking at their quads. Um, so when I think of accessory categories for the squat, I think of having some knee extension work and some unilateral work. And I've sort of spoken about which why I would find either of them um, more important. And when I do do my unilateral work, I try and like the people I'm giving that to that tends to be people for whom I'm really wanting to get some extra hip work in and so I'm a bit of a stickler for the execution of things like lunges and Bulgarian split squats oftentimes when people lunge they'll um they'll have their back knee sort of like track way forward of their waist and their front knee their front knee so the foot that's planted shoves way over their toes and then they get a lot of quad work through that front leg whereas really what I think should happen is you should almost like sit down between your knees and have an even distribution of load between your hips and your hips and your quads. And if you do that well, I think you'll get more carryover from the lunges and things because you actually get that development of the whole complex. So I like people to do things like that. Um, what do you think? I agree with that. Um, have you ever used like tempos and pauses for your lunges and split squats and single leg work? No, I haven't, but that would be so dreadful. Yeah, I, I use tempos and, and pauses for particularly Bulgarians, for people who... Um, lack hip stability it really helps you just like bang that just bang it into the into the ground um do you do high reps with the pauses as well like would you do 12 it wouldn't be like, no it wouldn't be 15s and 20s it'd be you know 10 6 to 10 probably okay so well that'd still be heinous but that's okay yeah i haven't done that um upper back and thoracic extensor work for the squat i tend to just achieve that through secondary squats so like you know, again, high bars, thoracic, not thoracic squats, um, safety bar squats. They are basically thoracic squats. Um, high bars and safety bar squats, I, I use to target like the upper back as well for people who have those issues. Um, do you do that or do you have any specific drills for them? Um, I like I like barbell back extensions. For the upper back though or the lower back? The upper back. Okay. If you have a bar like on the ground in front of you yeah, and you pull yourself into... Um, shoulder retraction and uh, thoracic extension yeah and then you come up from there and hold the top yeah really smashes your mid upper back okay cool no I haven't tried that I might try it um, do you have anything particularly to add on like need for accessory work and stuff no I think um, <coughs> I think you need to balance the musculature between sorry balance the volume between the hip and the knee 
mm-hmm. um, to get the best squat that we want. And then a lot of how we express that is going to be how we actually teach the technique. Right, well, so I think if you teach... to the other episode. Yeah, then. if you teach the technique correctly, the programming um, fits underneath that and it becomes, you know, easy. Okay, agreed. Okay, so compensations for injury and reduced tolerance we've spoken about. Do you have anything to add to what we've already said? No. Okay. Um, now, final question before we... Oh, my God, the Q&A. That won't take long. A lot of them have already been answered, so we'll be fine. All right. Final question was, how much interference and synergy with the other lifts is there from squatting and how does this influence programming decisions? What individual factors would contribute to this? So, very quickly, the squat can interfere with the bench, um, but I think... That's really? Yeah. You think so? Yeah, I've had a few of my lifters who say their upper back gets really tired and their shoulders get really tired from squatting. Is that like same day thing or yeah, next same day, day thing? Okay, yeah. Yeah, like... Um, but I think it's probably necessary or smart to have some exposure to squatting before you bench in comp phases because you're going to squat before you bench at comp. Mm-hmm. Um, in developmental phases, you can split them up because you just want to get some quality work done in all of them. Um, it may also just be necessary to do some squatting before some of your benching as well for you to get sufficient bench work because most people do more benching than squatting. Um, and so you can just pair the hard squats and the easy bench and so on. Um, or do squats that are easier on the shoulders before your harder bench sessions and things for most of your training. And then that pretty much eliminates the interference between them, but it's worth noting. Um, And that also depends somewhat on where you place the bar and your shoulder mobility, how much arch and stuff you have in the bench. Is there anything that you disagree with there or you'd add to that? Um, I haven't noticed a lot of an interference between squat and bench. Um, but I think that's probably because I tend to put my really, really light bench day after the squats. Mm. Um, so I'm probably avoiding that in the first place. Yeah. See, I, I tend, this is because of a difference in how we like to program bench as opposed to a difference in how we like to program squat. I like to have my easy bench day the day after my hard bench day rather than the day before it, because I want to be freshest for my harder bench day. In your experience, that hasn't been a problem. Um, to like to go easy bench, hard bench. Does that make sense? Yes. Because you, Alex usually does his hardest bench day the day after his hardest squats. So he'll go squats and easy bench. Then the next day he has hard bench and then easy deadlifts. And for me, I just don't like my clients to have their hardest day of a lift immediately following having done that lift, even if it's easy. So I don't do that. But that also means that because they often follow hard squats with moderate or hard bench, that they have more fatigue from the squats. So that's the difference. Does that mean that you have heavy bench Monday with light deads and then heavy squat with light? No, I usually um, I usually have... So a four-day weekly rundown for me would go hard squats, moderate bench, easy bench and easy deadlifts on day two, easy squats, hard bench on day okay. three, and then easy bench, hard deadlift or something. Yeah, see, I like to have the hardest session for each of the three lifts as the first lift of the day yeah Yeah, i guess that's probably the that's why i've done it the way that i've done it so if you have there's no real other option i guess if you say if you have a layout like mine then it might be worth considering that your squats are going to make your benches feel harder which is why i have my moderate bench after my harder squats makes sense yeah absolutely um now carryover from the squat to the deadlift um definitely exists like that's a thing um, because when you squat, you get some work through the glutes, your back obviously cops some work, we've just spoken about that, but I don't think the squat's sufficient to build the deadlift. Um, 
That said, though, because the hamstrings seem to tolerate less volume than most other muscle groups for most people, during peaking phases when deadlift volume and accessory volume for the hamstrings pulls way back, um, the hamstrings don't tend to suffer. They just get fresh. But I still think keeping some extra squat volume in um, helps sort of prevent detraining of like the glutes and back and things. So it does contribute to deadlifts then. So that's another reason why I said I liked more squat frequency. Did that make sense the way I said it? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the squat contributes to the deadlift, but it doesn't tick all the boxes during peaks when you pull back on hamstring accessory. The squat's ticking the boxes that are important and still need work. Um, If you do hard squats before your deads in a given training session, it's obviously fatiguing and usually suppresses deadlift performance, but in competition prep, that might be worth doing here and there. We spoke about that as well. Um, and spacing your harder squat and deadlift sessions across the week is smart. That's something both Alex and I do. Is there anything much you'd want to add to that? Nah, obviously there is interference, and that's going to be expressed in the way that we program the heavy and light sessions and the way that we, um, the way that we organize the heaviest squat versus the heaviest deadlift in the week. It's very clear that they do interfere with each other just because of how much spacing we give. Mm. Um, so as long as you do have that spacing and that spacing is contrast between heavy light and time spacing between hardest deadlift, hardest squat of the week, you should be okay. Um, you know, you are going to feel a little bit beat up from squats when you go to deadlift and that's okay. Mm. And that's kind of something that you have to um, think of as normal, especially when you're in a meat prep, you know, in that six to three week out um, range. Mm. After the three week out range, the volume drops a lot and, you know, you'll be beat up, but it'll be more nervous system than like muscular fatigue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of something that is always going to be there and you just have to do your best to, to mitigate that. I think if there were to be a, if you had to have either squats making you tired for deadlifts or deadlifts making you tired for squats in your training squats making you tired for deadlifts is way better yeah for sure it's more specific to competition and usually you can deal with the fatigue from squats when you deadlift whereas if your back is torched from deadlifting you're going to squat like shit Mm. um and it's yeah it's just untenable so if you have to go hard squats then harder deadlifts or something on adjacent days that's way better than the other way around and you can we've mentioned this a million times you can get away with the least amount of intensity on the deadlift mm. and the least amount of volume on the deadlift. Yep. So, you know, your squat can essentially drive your deadlift to to a degree, especially more than the deadlift is going to drive the squat. Yep. So if you had to choose between one, yeah, squat takes priority. I reckon we take a quick break again before we do these Q&As. Um, so a few, few listener submitted questions, we'll knock them off and then we're out of here. Welcome back to episode 59. Uh, we're going to now do a Q&A. Uh, so I asked the listeners out there for some questions uh, specifically regarding programming the squat on my Instagram. And uh, we got quite a few questions. Most of them we've already answered. Yeah, well, we can just read them out and direct them to the thing we answered. All right, so first question from Aiden Prosser. Shout out to Aiden. He definitely hasn't come this far in the podcast. If he has, respect. If he has, if he has, message me saying purple dragon. <laughs> All right, yeah. Then we'll know. Ask. So he said, explain the importance between high bar and low bar at the start slash end of any prep. 
Okay, so we've already alluded to the importance. High bars are a really good general leg strength builder that have lots of carryover to your normal squat. They can be a really good variation to use in hypertrophy blocks when variety can be your friend. At the end, you obviously, if you compete low bar, you're going to be doing low bar in your heavy sessions and high bar could be used as like a lighter session during a peak, but usually you're going to do low bar. So it's basically just the transition from from non-specific to specific squatting. Anything to add? Nope. Okay, sweet. Next question. From David Obson. When to use high bar, low bar, front squat, SSB, belt squat, pendulum? Which rep ranges are beneficial? Have answered completely. Let's skip that. Okay, Shout skipping. <laughs> I'm sorry, mate. Sorry, David. <laughs> yeah, next. Uh, Josh Mardini. Shout out, Josh. I feel like the people are getting all they wanted and more out of this episode from these questions. <laughs> all right, let's go. We've already answered this one. Um, programming the injured athlete, question mark. We've kind of alluded to that, but also listen to my episode with Chrissy. If you're injured, get not injured first. Um, yeah, we've kind of alluded to that. Yeah, it would be better if you weren't injured, so be less injured. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, otherwise that's a full podcast. But yes, we've alluded to that already. All right, next question. Oh my God, this is so similar to the first two. At which point in programming would you decide to switch a lifter from high bar to low bar? Maybe they mean like a permanent transition. It says in programming, but if we're talking about in like, in like just a developmental from, you know, learning how to squat versus learning how to squat for powerlifting. Hmm. um, When we get someone brand new to the gym, you know, they probably won't see a low bar squat for the first few months. And um, there's a... there's a few reasons for this and we've spoken about a lot of them earlier and that we want to build general strength general work capacity but when we get someone first in the gym like the priority isn't to make them the strongest lifter that they can be you know that year it's to build the base for the future and you know just learning the the movement pattern and getting a lot of different stuff in is going to be like the bigger priority at that point what do you think will i don't really disagree although what i tend to do is basically get them to do whichever squat suits them best. So some people actually find it kind of hard to squat high bar, which I find weird because I think it's really comfortable and easy. Um, But some people find it harder to squat high bar and moving the bar down their back just helps them balance a bit better. And, you know, they just lean over a little more. Have you noticed that with someone who's brand new, fresh in the gym, like never trained before? Yeah. Yeah, I've not. Yeah. Some, yeah, some people just struggle to squat upright. I don't, I think it might be like an ankle and hip mobility thing. I'm not certain though. But you put the bar a bit lower on their back and say lean over a bit more and they squat better. They don't necessarily go super deep, but they squat a bit better. But otherwise, I would basically just get people developing general strength, squatting high bar. And then once they're a competent squatter, um, then I might start introducing the low bar as an easy variation and just still working on getting them broadly strong. And then when it's like actually they have competitive aspirations and maybe they've got some experience then I'd start thinking about making the low bar their main lift. But there's not like a there's not a hard and fast cutoff like squat high bar till you can do one fifty. Like it doesn't matter. Yeah. Just get good at squatting and then pick one. Yeah, like you may get someone in the gym their first time in the gym and they've been watching powerlifting on Instagram or on YouTube or whatever and they want to do powerlifting and they've never trained before. You know, and they want to do a comp in two months. Yep. You might they might do high bar at their first comp. Yeah. And that's totally okay. Actually, as an example, by the way, sorry of the people who squat better low bar than high bar, Matt, the guy I was training today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He squats better low bar than high bar, even though his shoulder mobility sucks, and he squats really upright, but he just squats better low bar. And, like, he's not a power lifter, so I just get him to squat low bar because it's the one he does better. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another other example. Shout out to 
uh, Manish Manish I don't think he, I don't think he listens but okay. shout out to Nish okay um, he has had multiple surgeries on his shoulder yeah. so he'll never be able to get the bar in a low bar position so for him the progression is never right um, and to give another example one of my clients um, Chris who I was coaching this morning um, he's like he weighs over 160 kilos and for him like he's just got too much size in his upper body to get his hands behind and in that position and you know he's one of his goals is to lose a bit of weight and once he does that he should be able to get the bar a bit lower so for him you know that might come with just losing some body mass shout out chris by the way yeah what a expert troll um he and luke who train together just give each other stick for an hour at a time it's excellent um all right next question who was that one by the way you didn't shout him out uh that was i don't know because hang on i'll I've taken a screenshot, so I can't click on the thing. All right, we'll show J C K I E N G. Okay, J C King. Yep. <laughs> All right. Next question. Uh, <laughs> this is from Lifting with Randy. Yep. Shout out Randy. Yep. He always asks me questions. Yeah, me too. How do you program the progression of the lifts? We've definitely addressed that. So in- start from light, start light, finish heavy, go from higher reps to lower reps, yep. um, go from less specific to more specific so that you can add more weight chop target reps down if you're gonna hit failure or like unreasonably close to it over like the course of a cycle yeah so over a training cycle you might start as light as 50 percent, and you might end as heavy as 95 percent. you might start with reps as high as 12 and you know up to 20 on accessory work and that may finish at singles and sets of six on accessory work yeah and if you've got like a if you have somebody who's sort of treading water between comps and they're doing like longer blocks of just general strength work then what i tend to do is sort of see roughly what their previous best you know for a given rep range was or for a given sort of volume so like say four by five and then just try and intercept that and beat it by between you know two and five kilos or two and seven kilos um at the end of a block and work back from that three or four or five weeks and progress them up to it um, and just build a progression around it, but nothing awfully complicated. Yep. Yep. All right. Add weight over time, drop reps over time. Yep. Um, How do you determine how many sets per week initially varying from lifter to lifter? Okay. The really trite, boring answer for this is if it's already working about that much, um, I I basically tend to do that. I ballpark if... I've already written programs for somebody and I knew they worked. Then I then I start at that amount um, and maybe add a bit if they're getting better and not, and not progressing awfully quickly. Um, if I haven't written programs for them before, I start conservative and try and fall within those guidelines I said of between 10 and 20 sets. So conservative being closer to 10 per week on the movements. And then once I get a gauge for how well they're tolerating the work, I add or subtract a little bit. But yeah, either start with what works or start conservative and add depending on their response. And you'll tend to find that with a reasonable quality of work, you don't need as much quantity. This is actually one of my uber bugbears. I'm not going to go on about it now. But basically, people just throw volume at people because if you give people enough work, it can compensate for the fact that the rest of your programming fucking sucks. Um, Or their technique sucks. Yeah, either of them. Um, but that doesn't actually mean that you've addressed the problem. It just means you're glazing over it lazily by just making them do more. So start conservative, make sure they're doing it well, add more if they can handle it. That's it. Alex? Yeah, if someone's progressing and recovering, so progressing from 
training cycle to training cycle or competition to competition. Um, if it's working, just continue doing the same thing. Um, if it gets to the point where it starts to slow down their progress, they've either reached a point where like they've gotten advanced enough that you know progress is going to stall, or if it's stalled completely, you, you can have a look at adding volume or potentially adding volume through a third session. Um, so if we're squatting twice a week, um, doing three sets in each session, you know, we could add four set. We could add an extra set to one one of those sessions, or we could add an extra set to both of those sessions, or we could throw in another session of you know two or three sets. Um, but again, like Will said, if it's working, you know, if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, you know, what's up? If that's if it is really working, then continue doing what continue doing what you've been doing. Um, there's no need to change just to change. Next question. Speaking into comp while dealing with elbow slash bicep issues. Have answered and see a physio. Next question. <laughs> um, not about the squat, but you should do the junior and the masters because we're different. Okay, eventually. Next yeah, question. maybe. Maybe we should do them in one episode. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll figure that out. Next question. Uh, from Tim Hughes. Shout out, Tim. Do you program stance variations and if so, why? Um, I don't often but I could. Why would I? Um, I really can't think of a hugely good reason. I might uh, I might direct somebody to, say, do their high bars or front squats with a slightly more narrow stance and with their toes slightly more pointed forward than they do with their low bar squat if they can comfortably squat in that position, if I want them to do, to do squats with more knee travel. Um but I really can't see an enormously good reason for it. The The reason I could imagine would be if somebody had a stance that was right at the extremes of like super narrow or super wide and could actually comfortably squat anywhere towards normal from there um, and that stance was putting extra strain on them. In that instance, I might do it. Like if you squatted really wide and your adductors hated you for it all the time, then maybe that stance isn't suitable for you, to be honest. But if you were like that, then maybe I'd direct you to squat narrower, but really, no. Alex? Uh, As far as changing stances go, the only time I would change someone's stance is if I wanted it to be uh, permanent or if it was like an experiment for what we're going to do for the main lift. But I like to keep the stance the same for all the main squatting variations because of the requirements of hip stability and um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, most people's stance is their stance because it's the one that actually facilitates them squatting. Yeah, and you, you want to drill in that same amount of um, patterning instability and you know the same things that we teach technically in all stances so that they carry over as best to the comp squat. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that I do use like a heel variation. Mm. I'm not sure if you do this as well, but for high bars and safety bars in particular, for my... Um, flat shoot squatter squat squatters which is over half my lifters i would say probably 60 70 percent of my lifters would mm. squat in flat shoes for their high bar um and safety bar work i may ask them to wear a heel shoe um just to hit the quads a little bit more and take the take the squat through a greater range but as far as changing the stance no yep all right next question sorry i just closed my phone um, you often talk about having a hard session, then an easier variation later in the week. Could you give an example of how this would look? We have done that heaps in this 
podcast, but here here's a example. Hard session, Monday, squats, four sets of five at around 80% or something with two to three reps in reserve. Easy session on Thursday, high bar squat or safety bar squat, three to five sets of six at 70 to 75% with two to three reps in reserve of each. Um, And if it was an actual easy session, so maybe you did that Monday, Thursday, and then you had a true easy session, which might be on Friday or Saturday, it might be squat again or tempo squat. So say it's actual squat, you might have four sets of three at 70%. So that's with like a bazillion reps in reserve. Or if it was like a tempo squat, it might be like four sets of three at 60 or 65%, which is again with a billion reps in reserve. Does that all sound reasonable to you, Alex? Yeah, just um, as we get closer to comp, the the difficulty is going is going to um, be at a greater contrast. Yeah, so close to comp, maybe you might have your Monday squat session could be like one single at your opener and say three threes at 7% lighter or something. And then your Thursday squat session might be like four doubles at like 75% or something like that. And then that's way easier. Um, yeah, so there you go. There's a couple of examples for you again. Next question. Yeah, uh, last question. Do you Thank think you the descent should always be controlled, or is it better to let go? Um, if you want to, if you want to hear what we think about squat technique, go to I think it's episode fourteen, fixing the squat. Guess that's a huge guess. Okay, I have a one in fifty-eight chance of this being correct, and because I know it wasn't in the past twenty weeks, it becomes one in thirty-eight. I'm gonna check. Go guess. Thirteen. <laughs> What is it? I don't know. I'm honestly just banking on you being almost right, but not right. 14. Really? Far out. That's incredible. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, I'll answer extremely in brief anyway. Should you let go, like lose tension? No. Um, should it be controlled? Not necessarily. I mean, like controlled? Yes. Control doesn't have to mean slow. So I think you should hold your tension and you should let yourself speed up a little bit into the hole. How much? Depending on... Um, on your particular stance and what's comfortable for you and how fast you can go while staying tight. But you should never just let go and just flat drop. If you dive bomb your squats, they're probably going to be bad. Alex? Yeah, the, you need that amount of tension. You need as, as great an amount of tension as you can throughout the entire squat. If you lose that at all at any point, you're going to run into some problems and you're going to be leaking power. Yeah. So um, when we talk about like increasing speed, that is only if you have good stability and good tightness to begin with mm. if you don't then you need to continue working on improving that stability that tightness throughout the entire range of motion yeah i i would rather cue and in fact most of my lifters i cue them to squat a bit slower than many of the lifters i've observed you queuing on their descent most of them i cue sort of like a smooth descent with a bit more speed into the hole but then i try and say like reverse aggressively so don't like don't don't drop aggressively drop with some speed and then when you start coming up you come up aggressively if you think you're going to hit the hole at a million k's an hour and that's going to make you stand up faster it's not really true it's it's letting yourself hit the hole at all that's important and so the reason going really slow can be a problem is because it tends to make most people try and reverse higher than they ought to and so they they lose some strength because they just don't want to drop into the hole the way they should um yeah so that's what i think yeah i like to teach some level of dropping into the bottom but the this is something I've actually changed my mind on. Not entirely, but, you know, my 
my level on the spectrum has changed um, in regards to how fast I think you should drop and how important I think the stretch reflex is. Mm. I definitely think it's less important than I did two years ago. Yeah. Um, I think that without tightness, there's no need to even consider it. If you're not tight enough, you're not tight enough. You need to learn how to get tighter. Well, people have squatted, put it like this, people have squatted world records going down really slow mm. and really fast. Mm. And the common denominator obviously isn't speed. And I presume the common denominator is competency squatting and actually staying tight. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I don't have anything to add. Is that the final question? That is the final question. Well, thank crikey. Um, that was long. Yeah, I was going to say shout out to our possibly longest episode ever. Um, we'll chat to you guys next week with a shorter one. What are we talking about next week? Mm, I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs>